only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It's on page 939 in the blue uh, Bible in the, in the pew in front of you. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's again go to God in prayer. Oh Lord, we um, we have revealed here, uh, set before us. A glorious thing because it is is a display of your character. It is a display of your majesty. And yet it is, it is a hard thing in many ways. Lord, we pray that you would build us up. This is a part of your gospel. This is a part of the good news. It is a part of the revelation of the glory of Christ and revelation of his work, who he is. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would embrace it and that we would submit to you and that we ourselves would be transformed by this word. Even as we take this word to proclaim to others, to live it out, that we ourselves will be transformed by it. Oh, Lord, thank you for your truth. May it nourish us and build us up. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to uh, introduce this by really jumping right into the first point because I'm going to interact with it some. Our text really, if, if you want to take it in terms of kind of a logical order, God reveals his glory, 
man rejects that glory, God's wrath is poured out on man rejecting his glory. The way the order is here, it begins with the wrath of God. So we're going to begin with God reveals his wrath. And then the way the text unfolds is because God has revealed his glory and man rejects God's glory. So God reveals his wrath. God reveals his glory. Man rejects his glory. Now, when you think about wrath, you may be like me. You don't like to think about it. We don't really like to think about it. We're uncomfortable a lot of times, and we're uncomfortable especially in a society in which the wrath of God is ridiculed, looked at with disgust, really. If you really want to put something out there that is going to turn someone off, you start talking about the wrath of God. But though I might not like to think of it by nature that much, God wants me to think about it. And he wants you to think about it. And it's interesting about the gospel. The gospel, in proclaiming the good news, you'd think that, therefore, it would play down the judgment of God and play down the wrath of God. Because it's speaking about the good news that we can be saved from the wrath of God. But no, that's not the way it works with the gospel. The gospel puts forth the salvation of Christ and it puts forth the judgment of God in the same breath. You can see that right here in this text. For right after he said in verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the, uh, of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of God? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And we talked about that two weeks ago, that that means it's from beginning to end about faith. And then he quotes the Old Testament. That's why it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. But what's fascinating about this passage is you might expect in verse 18, however, the wrath of God is revealed. But that's not what it says. And in fact, it uses the very same word for revealed in the same verb tense. The righteousness of God is revealed. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed. That's the way the text reads. And they're put together. They're put as two things that are being presently revealed at the same, uh, concurrently. And so, when Paul, having introduced the gospel with these theme verses, verses 16 and 17, he takes a straight to wrath. He wants us to think about wrath first, as he has just introduced his gospel. And this will continue basically all the way through chapter 3, verse 19. And as a part of this, he will say, so we found, chapter 3, verse 9, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. That goes along with the all of verse 18. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 18 basically is introducing this whole section and it's rounded off with those statements at the, uh, in chapter 3. 
All are under sin. No one is righteous, not one. Now, so far from the gospel putting the wrath of God in the background, in a back closet, it makes it more explicit than ever. The judgment of God is made more explicit than ever. So, interestingly, when Paul is, and you can see this in the book right before Romans in chapter 17 of Acts, when he is speaking to the pagans in Athens, and he is begin, and after he has done this, the beginning part of talking about how the God that they worship as the unknown God is the true Lord of heaven and earth, and that God is not served by human hands, that he gives them life and breath and everything. When he moves from talking about how God is the creator, he then says this. The times of ignorance before God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Would that be how you would approach it for me? And, and here's the first thing I want to move from creation and say, at this point, here's what's going on in this world. God has now appointed a man through which he will judge the world, and he has raised him from the dead. You need to know that, Athenians. That's what history is now. It's being governed by this man that's at the right hand of God who is raised from the dead, and he will judge the world, and so God is commanding people everywhere to repent. So you see, judgment's not brought back. In fact, it's made more intense in the gospel. And he can say, it can say later in Acts chapter 24, verse 24, when, it, when Felix calls for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And now listen to verse 25. And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. So he's speaking to him about faith in Christ Jesus. And in the context, he speaks to him about coming judgment. It's not hidden. It's brought forward. Even in this letter itself, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is proclaiming to the moral person. And he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, this is a part of his very gospel. This gospel that he's laying out. And he's, many think he's giving us here the kind of approach he would have in the synagogues as he would begin in the Jewish, uh, the way the Jews would, uh, the, the Jewish writings would indict the Gentile idolatry, and then he would move into indicting the Jews as well. And he would proclaim the coming wrath. You remember John the Baptist as he was proclaiming the coming of Messiah. He said, the axe is at the root. Salvation, the kingdom of God is drawing near. But the axe is there for judgment as well. Paul even says in chapter 2, look at verse 15 and 16. After talking about the, con the law written on the conscience in verse 15, 
he says, their thoughts accusing or excusing them on that day when according to my good news, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And I actually had one commentator say that this, you should never think of the gospel as being associated with judgment because it's hardly ever. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Because Paul says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. See, part of the gospel is the revelation that this Messiah who saves the world by his offering is also the coming judge of the world. In the gospel, what is brought forward into the presence is that you can be justified and declared righteous before God right here and now. You've all heard my story of how I used to wish I could be the thief on the cross uh, because then I would know what's going to be said to me in that day because he was told, today you'll be with me in paradise because I just couldn't know whether I was going to go to heaven or not. And what happens in the gospel is a declaration of God that you are justified, that you are declared righteous, that you are forgiven, you are not guilty. And we hear the judgment day declaration, God's vindication of us now. But you see, also what's brought forward, judgment into the present. It's as though the whole panorama of what's coming is now brought to the present and it bears down upon this age. It's as though the gospel is coming forth and saying the time is short and the issues are critical and huge. There is salvation. There is judgment. And all the more is judgment apparent because now there's the dealing of God's with that we have to deal now with God having sacrificed his own son for the world. You remember what Jesus said to the Jews in his parable when he likened the Jews to or likened the, the, the vine owner, the owner of the vineyard, and the Jews were the caretakers, and they were not doing what they were supposed to, and so the owner of the vineyard kept sending servants and they would kill and they would abuse them one after another. And finally, Jesus says, the vineyard uh, owner of the vineyard said, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. They will respect him. But he said, no, they put his son to death. Of course, this was a picture of Israel having the prophets come to them. And then finally, Jesus Christ come to them. And Jesus said, what will happen to them? What will happen if they reject the son that he sends? And Jesus himself prophesied that Jerusalem would be leveled, that the Gentiles would raise it to the ground, that one stone would not be left on top of another one. He declared that, and it happened because they rejected the son. You see... Issues of life, of salvation and judgment are increased a hundredfold now in the gospel. The gospel brings forth the fact with clarity that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, as we will see, he, he talks about a process 
in verses 24 and following that God has given them over to their sin. And what many commentators have pointed out is that the coming judgment of God has shown into the present. It's like a burst of light, like a, a, a light uh, a flare or, or a burst, a, a bomb that's lit up everything. It shines back into the past shows. Is this working? It's on. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. Um, uh, so it, it shows that this process of mankind knowing the glory of God, seeing it in creation and rejecting it, exchanging that for idolatry, and God's giving them over to their corruption, is, has now seen for what it really is, that the judgment of God has been operating and is operating in this world right now. It's not that it just started. It always has been. But you see, the coming judgment has now shown into this world to give light as to what is happening in this world. And so the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And as we will see in two weeks, this, um, this, this wrath is not directed, it's not the wrath against the immorality, it's the wrath that gives us over to our immorality. What a way to view disobedience. What a way to view immorality and corruption is that for which God has given us over for our destruction. So, there are some, like a Joel Osteen, who says that we shouldn't even mention sin. He, re- he refuses to mention sin. Others have said the same because it is negative. And, of course, they wouldn't mention judgment either. And it's, it's interesting when you think back to Genesis. Now, I'm not saying Joel Osteen is demonic by this, okay, necessarily. But I am, hope you understand this. What was the first thing out of Satan's mouth to tempt her? You will surely not die. He attacked the doctrine of judgment. He attacked the doctrine of God's wrath immediately. Even then, he, after that, he said, God knows that if you eat this, you will become like him. But the first thing, let's, let's end, is this whole idea that there will be judgment. <laughs> judgment? Did he say, you could just hear the edges of it. Did, did he really say that? Die? Are you kidding me? No, you're not going to die. He knows you're not going to die. And he only told you this so that you wouldn't become like he is. That's what this is all about. He's holding out on you. But it's an attack on judgment itself. And I dare say for each of us, this certainly it's continuing to be what he does to pry you loose from obedience. Puritans wrote about this a lot, that one of the ways that he works in our hearts is to downplay, to hide 
the guilt and the corruption and the danger of sin. If those are played down, it makes the pathway to sin so much easier, doesn't it? When I was uh, younger, I played golf. I don't play golf anymore. But if you saw me, you'd say, yeah, you're right. You don't play golf. But when I was uh, 10 to 13, 14 in there, I played pretty decent golf, played in the 80s. And um, But about 12 years old, I didn't have a pitching wedge, sanding wedge, or anything like that. I had a nine iron. And when I got within 100 yards of the green, besides the green itself, there was one club I had. It didn't matter if I was 90 yards, 60 yards, 50 yards. It didn't matter if I was down a hill, if I was right on the edge of the green. I had my nine iron. I knew what to do with it. I knew exactly what kind of lift. I knew how to hit it soft. I knew how to hit it hard, at least for a 12-year-old. That was my one club. And I want to suggest to you that playing down judgment and playing down the danger and guilt and corruption of sin is Satan's nine iron. That's what he uses when he draws near to you in temptation. Again and again and again. It's that there really is not wrath. God really doesn't have a fixed hatred against all sin at all times. And it always disgusts him. He always hates it. He is always repulsed by sin. Are you like me that that can fade? And you hear more that it doesn't really matter. Other people do it. Look what they did to you. Look what she did to you. Look what he did to you. It's not that big a deal. It's not that serious. Or you'll be forgiven. Or you are forgiven. Any of those things. Now, it may be true that you are forgiven. It may be true that you belong to him. But it is always true that his wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Always. He stands opposed to sin. Wrath is especially talked about by Paul as that which will come at the end of the age. We just saw in chapter 2, verse 5, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Later in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Looked at here as the wrath that is coming. Explicitly in Colossians uh, chapter 3 verse 6, it says, after talking about the sins of man, he says, for this reason, the wrath of God is coming. Or 1 Corinthians 1.10, when he is talking about the Thessalonians and their Conversion, he said, "You turn from God, from the you, you turn from your idols to serve the living God and to wait from His for His Son from heaven, who saves us from the wrath to come." To see how every everywhere you turn, in a sense, in the Gospels, uh, in, in the Gospel itself, as Paul proclaimed it, he kept this before his people. He preached it to the unbeliever. He kept it even before 
his, the believers because there in Colossians he's writing to the believers and he says, avoid these things. Avoid these things and don't practice these things. And he says, don't deceive yourself into becoming one who just practices these things because the wrath of God is coming on those who practice these things. Don't deceive yourself. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't deceive yourself. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if this is just your practice, your way of living. Same thing in Ephesians. It's over and over. Now, the danger, isn't it? Here's the danger that we lose sight of the fact that we are justified in Christ Jesus. And in all of our weakness and failure and struggle to become more obedient, that he receives us and accepts us in Christ Jesus. But it does militate against an attitude of utter carelessness and turning our back upon the ways of Christ, thinking that it doesn't matter how I live. Or that idea, once saved, always saved, which means I can do whatever I want to and I can't be lost. And so here, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This indicates that indeed it is God's wrath. It's a way, as Cranfield says, to underscore it really is from God himself. It's a way to say that this wrath is unmediated. It comes straight from God. The the idea from heaven is the same as so many places. That's where he dwells. That's from where he answers prayer. That's from where he acts for his people. We even pray our Father who is in heaven. It's an intimate term. It's a direct term. And so wrath is unmediated. It comes directly from God. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable because it's from heaven. It shows the majesty of it. It shows that he is the all-seeing God. And it shows that nothing can stop it because he is God who is in heaven. It shows that it has absolute wide extent. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what's interesting about this passage is that the wrath is not directed in the first place upon men's immorality, but it's directed upon their rejection of God's glory, their rejection of his honor, Their rejection of embracing and praising him and showing gratitude to him. Their rejection of his lordship. Their rejection of their creatureliness. And as Paul says here, God does reveal his glory. When he says that they suppress the truth, this word is the same one that's mentioned in so many places in Scripture, like John 1, where it says Jesus Christ revealed grace and truth. Or Jesus himself says in John fourteen six, I am the truth. So here's that word truth, but it's not the truth of the gospel. It's not the truth as in, in revealed in Christ. It's truth about the reality of God in creation. And he says what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. 
That means that God in his creation has stitched into creation the revelation of his glory. Can you imagine somebody, a woman coming up to a girl, coming up to her, her mother and saying, Mother, this, this shirt, this blouse that has this pattern of flowers, I want you to take the flowers out. She says, Honey, what? I just want you to take the flowers out of this, this fabric. Honey, I'd have to just rip the whole thing up. We'd have to dismantle it. We'd have to start all over and make a whole new fabric because this fabric has flowers in it, you know. And so God has stitched his glory in the creation itself. Back in Acts chapter 14, he said, as he was proclaiming the gospel, God did good and did not leave himself without witness, verse 17. That is, in creation, because he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So that we are always standing before his majesty and we are always enjoying the benefits of his kindness and his power, always. If we don't admit it and if we reject it, which Paul Paul says all mankind has, has done that, It doesn't make it any less the truth. Because he says in verse 20, his invisible attributes, his power and divine nature, his deity have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's inexcusable that any one of us, any one of us would not fall down in gladness and rejoice in him and embrace him and Thank him constantly and be in constant awe of him. It's inexcusable. For we taste of his majesty and kindness and power all during the day. Every human being does. It is clear. It is plain. It is palpable. It is tangible. It is real. That's what Paul is saying inexcusable rejection of God. And then he plays that out, this suppression of the truth, this holding down of the truth. Uh, One commentator points out that this word binding uh, is used in magic spells, to bind a spell on someone. He said it could mean that Paul is talking about the demonic here, the demonic sacrilege of rejecting God as creator. The demonic sacrilege of rejecting God as creator, which is what Satan was drawing Adam and Eve to do. And of course, he goes on to say, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't thank him. Then what happened? Became futile, Hearts were darkened. Even as they claimed to be wise, they were darkened. One commentator uses the word dementia set in. (laughs) Spiritual dementia. They couldn't see anything clearly anymore. Everything was distorted and twisted. Which shows that you and I must be worshipers of the God who made us or we fail as human beings. We become darkened darkened and twisted and distorted in all of our perceptions about who we are and what other people are and what the world is about. All the while, 
energetically claiming how wise we are and the foolishness of that because we've lost ourselves completely, lost our whole meaning. We've lost our dignity, the whole capacity that we have to enlarge ourselves in reaching out and embracing God himself, to push him away and to implode upon ourselves and to say, I will have glory, I will call the shots, I will be God instead of God. And so we dissolve into little pebbles instead of being the image of God enlarged and ennobled and dignified by the glory and honor and happiness that we find in God. And it has this tragic statement in verse 23 by rejection of the glory of God. This is resembles Psalm 106 where it says about Israel, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that feeds on grass. Or Jeremiah 2.11, they exchange the glory of God for that which does not profit for idols. And so that charge against Israel, and in Israel's fall in the wilderness, the, the Jewish writings would say there's much like Adam's fall. So right, Adam was made and he fell and Israel was remade as the people of God and they fell. And now that's being applied and extended to the whole world. And this sad, sad thing, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Just suppose that uh, you had a Lexus, uh, under under 2010 Lexus, SUV LX10. They start at around 75,000, okay? And I find out, that you have exchanged that for a 1990 Ford Aerostar. And the Aerostar has been sitting in a field for about five years. The, the roof leaked, so the seats long rotted out. Somebody put a couch in there that itself has rotted out, and it smells bad because a cat died in that couch. There's no radio. There's no dashboard hardly. There's holes in the bottom. The thing smokes. It's an offense just driving down the street. And I said, am I to understand that you had a Lexus fully paid for and you exchanged it for this Aerostar? May I ask why? And you said, I just didn't like the smell of fresh leather. And that voice that came out of the dashboard just bothered me. And it, it was too fast. I like things that just kind of poke along. And it lit up. And I wasn't used to having lights anywhere. On and on and on. Just trying to set before you, brothers and sisters, that in whatever way any of us exchanges the glory of God for an idol. We're going to run after that idol and try to be satisfied by that idol, try to be dignified, try to get meaning from that idol. It doesn't have to be wood and stone. You know, it can be money. It can be power. It can be family. It can be entertainment. It can be sports. It can be anything. Don't exchange the glory of God for an idol. Don't exchange being ennobled by God himself 
it means doesn't mean, of course, that we don't then embrace his creation, embrace one another and family and even entertainment in its right way and all. But it's all for the sake of and because of God himself. You and I, to the extent that we reject the honor and glory of God and gratitude, we become darkened. Isn't it interesting how if anxiety, anger, depression, sadness, hurt, loneliness, hopelessness, if these things begin to take your life, instead of the exaltation of being filled with the majesty and goodness and glory of God and the gratitude that you have for God that just fills your heart and overflows. If these other things govern your life, you know destruction sets in in every way. Relationships are harmed. Responsibilities are harmed. Everything is harmed. We're made. We're made to feast on him. What a glorious thing that you're made to feast on God. But our heart... Our basic heart is that we want ourselves more than God. We'd rather try to feast on ourselves than God. May God set you free and set me free to embrace his glory. And may we all see that anyone who gives himself to suppressing the truth and exchanging the glory of God for a lie, The wrath of God abides on that person. Be saved from that wrath. Jesus bore that wrath so that you would not have to suffer it. And he saves you and me, as it says in 2 Corinthians, from living for ourselves so that we will live for him. He sets us free so that we will become people that begin to feast on God's glory and turn our backs on idols. That's what he said to the Thessalonians. You turn from idols to serve the true and living God. May that be true of all of us. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for this awesome revelation of your gospel. This revelation of salvation that is in Christ and the awesome judgment that will come in Christ. Oh, Lord, as we've said before, that terrible statement in Revelation 6 of people who are crying out that they would be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Oh, if we do not embrace this Lamb, if we do not trust Him and have all of our sins taken away and washed clean through His work, that He might... Justify us. We are ungodly. We are idol worshipers. We are living for ourselves by nature, but you will forgive us. You will make us clean through your work on the cross. You will raise us up to new life through your resurrection and through your spirit. Oh, Lord, you will set us free from sin, as you said. And you will set our hearts more and more on you. Though we'll never be perfect in this life, you will more and more grow us to set our hearts upon Christ. And so, Lord, we pray, set us free. If there is anyone here who has not trusted you, but even now has exchanged the glory of God for a lie, we pray that you might draw them to Jesus Christ 
that we may trust Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and not face Him as the Lamb who is now pouring out His wrath upon the world. Oh, bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?